Good morning and welcome to another episode of Teaching Startups to Fish, Sales, Scale and Startups. I have been on a little bit of a hiatus from last year. I haven't done an episode in quite a while, but now seeing as I'm going to be heading over to the US for my second US trip, trying to get some sales over there, this podcast comes at the perfect time. I am speaking to an absolute genius in sales who has had a very successful career out in the US and has also had a very successful year out in Australia. I couldn't be more excited to speak to him because he's also a very, very good friend of mine. We've had some fun times both in Australia, in Vegas, and a bunch of other places. So <laughs> Evan, man, welcome. Welcome to the pod. Thanks, Milan. I greatly appreciate it, man. And I just greatly appreciate the friendship and uh, professional relationship that we've built uh, since being in Australia and, of course, the US as well. You're uh, damn right. We've had some really good times together. Man, this goes back to, I think what the first time we actually sat down and spoke properly was when I was trying to get some money off you for investment when we first started out. I think it was, yeah, it was pre-seed. I was trying to get, I think we were raising like a million bucks and I had you down for a nice lunch and I was just trying to tease some money out of you. Uh, So yeah, it's grown since then. What's it been? What, four, four or five years now? Four or five years now, man. Yeah, I'll never forget that launch right there. I believe I met your co-founder, CEO, right there near the opera, right by the harbor, looking at the bridge. It was a great launch, man. Yeah, yeah. Hey, look, it was nothing like the view when we were watching the Broncos and the Raiders at the (laughs) Allegiant Stadium in Vegas. That was nuts. (laughs) That was awesome. But look, dude, I want to dive in, you know, tell people who you are, what you're all about, you know, what have you done in the world of sales, you know, talk a little bit about Kronos, how did you start up in the US, and then what did you do over here in Australia? Yeah, man. Thanks for that. So I've had a 17 plus year sales career. And the reason why I ended up at Kronos, now known as Ultimate Kronos Group, Ultimate Group, as well as Kronos Merge. So they're now known as UKG. Long story short, man, I started with them as an intern in, at university, as they say in Australia, uni or college here in the US. I was a research analyst. So I basically at the front end of sales cycles with enterprise reps would help build industry profile, executive profiles, financial profiles, do a bunch of analysis to really help build the ROI value proposition to help those enterprise sales reps in the front end of sales cycles and even so much so building out their their presentation. So I got to I got to meet a lot of elite salespeople early on in my after that I got I was quickly identified I moved into as a, as a senior solutions consultant so I would get on the road go work with strategic enterprise accounts really tailoring what our solution could do to the value that these organizations were looking for. And then I was at a sales conference in Chicago. This was around the the financial crisis. And I saw a sales rep on stage get handed a $1.4 million bonus check. And I quickly realized to myself, wow, I want to move into sales. You know, I earn my own way through life, through college, pay my own way through college. As you know, in the United States, we take a a lot of debt here to get through school. And I saw that as my way out. So I'll pause there because that person that was on stage uh, was like, man, I got to introduce you to a director of sales. You got to go into sales. You got the personality. You know what we're looking for, blah, blah, blah. Long story short, I had a sales director. Shannon Bates is her name. Really good leader in life. She's also a a confidant to me too. She goes, I'm going to put you in the excuse my French, shittiest territory in our company during the financial crisis in the Midwest, retail hospitality, Iowa, Michigan, Indiana, Ohio. She goes, get on a plane, go listen to your customers, come back and let's figure out how we can help them. That first year, I did 110% of my number and I have never looked back. 
So I was in mid-market sales at Kronos. That is 2,500 employee to 5,000 employee customers. And I was able to successfully grow my outside territory into a 17-state outside territory. Basically, the, the, the West Coast, California, Washington, Nevada, the Vegas Strip, Colorado, you name it. But I always have my eyes on enterprise sales. As you guys probably all know, enterprise sales is where you want to get to. That is the top of the top, the elite of the elite. And I always let my VP of sales, Neil Solomon, who has been the greatest leader to me in my life. And I will go on a side note here. It is very important if you want to be successful in sales, find confidants, advisors, and mentors that can help you not only in your present day sales career, but outside of it and beyond. And I'm happy to say my VP, we're still really good friends to this day. Well, we were at a conference in Orlando, Florida, and this is exactly how it went. The managing director of Australia, my VP, was walking one way. I was walking the other a few beers deep. And Neil Solomon said, hey, mate, how would you like to move to Australia? I got an enterprise sales role available to you for retail hospitality. I said, Neil, I know you'll take care of me. Sign me up. And within three years <laughs> or within three months, I was moving to Australia to take over a three-year contract commitment out there to help build out the retail hospitality practice in Australia. So that's how... I started my sales career, how I got to enterprise sales, and how I ultimately got to Australia. That is an insane story, but there is one thing there that really, really caught my interest. At the beginning, when you started saying that you went through college to do that research role, I mean, that sounds like there is a there's a huge focus in the US around sales and people treat it like it's it's, you know, something, you know, prestigious to get into, right? That's what it sounds like. Otherwise, they wouldn't have specific college roles for research positions, right? Like here in Australia, you're most of the time what you hear is I don't really know what to get into. And then you sort of fall into sales. You go, you get your BDR job, you move to an AE, you move to account management, whatever, whatever it is you're doing. But it sounds like that that was a really thought out process then. I mean talk talk me through that. What why why did you do that? Yeah. So Honestly, it was a little bit of necessity. I, I, I graduated with my learners in finance investment analysis. I thought I was going to be a Wall Street guy. Of course, during the financial crisis, nobody was paying any money and you were doing free internships 40 hours a week. I said, nah, -uh, not happening. I, I got to make ends meet here. So I went to my internship coordinator. I said, I got to find a paid internship. She goes, well, there's this software company named Kronos paying $17.50 an hour, 40 hours a week. How about that? I was like, give me that card. Well, the rest is history. I ended up landing that internship. But to your point, Kronos built an internship program early on in, in, in uni college to where they wanted to bring talent in and coach and mentor them so they could eventually go into a sales career. So there was a pre-sales director who built this team called the Kronos Research and Analysis Desk. And it was a bunch of young people that would do those research projects, really get deep into analyzing organization and companies to figure out who would be a best fit for a Kronos solution and would teach us how to put ROI analysis together on, okay, here's how much the solution costs, but if we could put some value around it and present it that way, it just helps you get into a sales cycle get teeth deeper into that sales cycle and create deeper relationships that ultimately allow you to close a deal, not only based on relationships, but the value you're actually going to bring to that organization. Measured value. 
That's a perfect segue. Thank you. you. There was a big emphasis on relationships there. And I've got a bunch of questions around the differences in Australia compared to the US when it comes to all sorts of things. So the first one that I want to dive into, you know, we'll stay on relationships, right? So what's more important? Is it the personal relationship with the person you are trying to sell to? Or is it the transaction itself? And I mean, for Aussies, it seems like I did a bit of scouring on the internet and I found that a lot of people are saying that for Aussies, it's more the relationships that matter and the Americans are more transactional. I personally don't think so. I've had a little bit of a taste of what it's like in the US. I've tried selling in California, in, in Denver, in New York, and I feel like that they are far more transactional in the US. But I'd love to get your take on it. What do, what do you think? Yeah. So look, when I was in Australia, when I was enterprise sales, I want to clarify, I worked with organizations that were 10,000 employees and bigger globally. You know, I worked with brands such as Kohl's, Woolworth, City Beach, Australia, Chemist Warehouse, just to name a few, some of those what leading global brands there out of Australia. And the reason why I mentioned that is because in Australia, you're absolutely right. And by the way, there's good and bad to each of these things. It just depends. I will say Australians are definitely heavily focused on the relationship. In Australia, I quickly found out that it's more of a you scratch my back, I will scratch your back culture, right? Taking people out, getting to know their teams. You know, you would have a COO of an organization that says, you want to do business with me? You need to get to know my entire team, okay? So come here to Brisbane as an example. Take my team out, get to know all of them and what they need and want, then I will allow you to do business with us. So a really scratch my back, scratch yours culture. Yes, here in the US, it is a lot more cutthroat as I'm sure you've experienced, but we also have a lot more competition. There's a lot of technology firms out here hunting for that same business. So relationship does matter, but you have to work a lot harder to really get deep and wide into relationships. I call it don't be single threaded in an account. So although I might be able to get a relationship with the CFO, he might block me from everybody else. But in Australia, I felt it was more of a team oriented approach and leaders kind of cared what their teams wanted more so than in the US. Now, eventually you get there in the US, it just takes a lot more work, a lot more meetings, et cetera. That's interesting, right? Because I find that when I'm speaking to people here in Australia, it's very hard to break that barrier. I feel like that a lot of the Aussies here are very introverted in a business sense, right? Like if you say, hey, let's go out for dinner, they're like, why? Like what, 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 what you know, what's, what's the intention behind that? Why are we going out for dinner? Whereas in the US, I feel like that the Americans are just so much more free in that sense. They're like, oh yeah, sure. Let's go out for dinner. Let's go out for lunch. Let's do whatever. Did you get that same sort of impression or how did you break down those barriers to actually get people to let you take them out? Well, it could be because I brought a value-oriented approach to the front end of my sales cycle. So I talked a lot of value before I ever talked about Kronos UKG first. I call it lead to Kronos, not lead with Kronos. So before I ever talked about anything Kronos, it was talking about them and their organization and their people, right? Which I established, I guess, somewhat of trust at the very beginning, which probably put their guard down to allow me to have those type of relationships versus I would say in the U S my experience has been, it's what do you want? What do you need? Why? But I also think also it's because Americans expect the going out to dinner and entertaining more so because they all do it. So 
I have witnessed with a lot of American organizations, you could go out to dinners multiple times and it leads to nowhere because they're just kind of taking advantage of your wallet, if that makes sense. Versus Australians, I feel once you get there, it's more genuine. Yes. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. And I completely agree. So staying on that communication point, right? Lead to Kronos. Let's talk a little bit about communication styles, right? And how do they differ between SaaS salespeople in Australia and in the US, right? So I find that if you're a salesperson who's very formal, very strong, and again, this really also depends on your industry as well. This depends if you're dealing with someone in healthcare or, or you know, if you're dealing with someone in corporate office, but communication styles do vary. But I think in general, as, as a blanket, I think that Aussies are far more laid back Whereas Americans are very, you know, direct and structured with their approach. There's, you know, there's the upfront contract and there's a formal agenda and all that sort of stuff. So tell me a little bit about that and, and how you think that the Australians and the Americans perceive that when a salesperson is talking to them in that way. I'm so glad you brought this up on your own accord because... You're absolutely right. And I'm not saying it's good or bad. As a matter of fact, I enjoyed the Australian approach, but I had to quickly learn that culture difference. As an American coming in, it was, I was very structured. You're on time. You stick within the time limits of your agenda. You stick to the agenda topics. Boom, you move on, right? You're here for business. In Australia, I would show up to meetings. Well, meetings would start 15, 20 minutes late. You would have an agenda. They'd be like, put that agenda down. I want to get to know you first. Where are you from? How are you doing? Who's your family? What's their names? How many kids? And I'm like, it kind of freaked me out because I'm like, man, I got other meetings I got to get to, you know, and meetings would run late too. But I kind of liked it because it was more laid back. You got to know each other in the business setting versus having to do it outside. And yes, in America, it's we're short for time. We don't have any time. What are you here for? Let's get to the point, stick to the agenda topics, and we're ending on time today right? I kind of, now that I've done both, I like kind of a mix. So in my agenda, I will leave time to get to know the organization a little bit better. I really appreciated the Australian culture on that front. And it was a lot of fun to be honest with you. And communication styles, it's not just the way you speak, right? Like I remember when I went to, I went to the US and I was trying to sell to one of the largest healthcare organizations on the East coast. And I had someone from Austrade coaching me through the process of, you know, how do you, how do you approach that situation? What do you do in the meeting and so on? And I was actually just going to rock up in, you know, pants and a button down shirt. But it, the, the guy that I was speaking to nearly had a heart attack when I said I wasn't going to be wearing a tie and a blazer. So, <laughs> so tell me about that transition. I mean, did you find it more comfortable being here in Australia? Like right now I'm wearing shorts and a t-shirt, right? Working from home. Whereas in the US, even if you're, I found that even if I was on Zoom meetings, I had to have the button down shirt going and all that sort of stuff. So tell me a little bit about that sort of that side of the culture around dressing and preparing for meetings. Is it a sign of respect or is it, you know, like what 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 is that whole culture around that? Well, I, I, there's a saying here that I think kind of is a global, but, you know, first impression means everything. Right. And I, I think that really is true here in America. Now, to your point earlier, right. Different verticals are different. Healthcare, very professional organization. Like you can't even really take healthcare executives out to dinner and wine them and dine them because there's legalities around it. Retail hospitality, a little bit more lax. They want a party, right? So there is, there's cultures within verticals. But I'll also say in the United States, we're obviously huge. The Northeast is different than the Southeast, is different than the Midwest, is different from the Northwest, West Coast, 
and Colorado as an example, right? I'll give you a story. So in the Northeast, yes, you better be suited and booted, looking sharp. That's what they expect. Very professionalism, probably one of the most cutthroat cultures in the United States. I showed up to a company called Columbia Care once once in a suited and booted tie, everything. And the guy looked at me and goes, what are you wearing? You freaking me out, man. Like you need to wear Columbia mountain wear, you know, let me take you shopping for 50% employee discount. Cause we don't <laughs> want you coming to our meetings like this. So to answer your question, you need to know the difference of cultures within the United States and also wherever else you're going. It could defer no matter what, but I will say, I had a boss teach me once, you better uh, show up and give that good first impression because you can always dress down from there. That is a very good point. That is a very good point. And something I need to take on board. I'm way too relaxed when it comes to my meetings. It's ridiculous. Tell me about that though. How do you know? I mean, the US is massive and every state has, you know, a different set of laws, different cultural perspectives, you know, different ways you conduct business. So how do you get your head across the entire country or like actually better question when you got your territory was it national was it you know segmented to east coast west coast north south midwest how how did that look and then how would you prep for actually understanding what those cultures are like yeah so Sales in the U.S., by, by the way, every company is different. I can only speak to Kronos, and that's where the majority of my career took place, 13 plus years. We were verticalized, so healthcare, retail, hospitality, dining, pharma, if you, if you will. And we did have territories, but we also had a, had a culture of if you do well, you hit your quota, we can get you more territory. I don't know if that's still the same, but... You know, I started in a Midwest territory, like I said, Ohio, Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, Iowa. And from performance, I got granted Southern California. From performance, I got Washington. And eventually I was managing a 17 state outside territory. So we were able to get more territory, move food, more food to eat, if you will, based on performance. Now, I know every company is different. To go back to your question on how do you get to know the different cultures, I will say I'm I'm blessed. My dad is a retired colonel in the Marine Corps, very guy of 27 years. I moved every two to three years of my life growing up. South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, Maryland, Florida, DC, California. I moved to Colorado on my own for university. So just by growing up, I got to experience a lot of different cultures. And I, and I will say this, my VP, that was one of the things he looked for was the reason why I hired you was one, you were an athlete, two, you moved a lot. And I know that would be good for sales. But that doesn't mean that you can't get that experience by moving. One of my biggest pieces of advice that I've given to my friends and others is if you have an opportunity to move out of the state that you're comfortable in and you've been born and raised and grew up in, move, go somewhere different, live there, breathe their culture, do it again while you're young in your career. Because I'm telling you, although it's a, you know, you got family, you got friends and oh my gosh, it's, it's so concerning and you're probably afraid and anxious. It will be the best thing you could do for your career. And I can tell you right now, hands down, my wife and I both moving to Australia was the best thing that I could have done personally and professionally for my career. And I'm speaking on behalf of my wife, too, who is now a chief of staff at Johnson & Johnson, a large healthcare organization. That wouldn't have happened if we didn't move to Australia. That's insane. And I'm glad you brought up the personal part as well, because I think there's a huge, there is a huge component when it comes to personal development and just seeing the world in a different way and sort of, you know, getting out of that cradle and, and learning the necessary life skills. I, I mean, I'm not saying that you didn't have any life skills before, but I'm saying you, you, you see the world in a different way when you experience those different types of cultures and 
you know, creativity spikes. There's been studies done on that as well. If you, you know, the, the more you travel, the more you learn about other cultures, the more creative you are. And, you know, there, there are so many benefits. So I 100% resonate. But now let's talk about the startup founders that are looking to move from Australia to the US, right? Like that's something that, you know, it's sort of like that shining star that, that, that people are chasing in the startup world here. You know, the biggest market, US, how do we get there? What are some things that we should be considering when moving to the US outside of all the standard things like, you know, where are your customers? You know, where where does it make the most sense? What are your setup costs and, and all the standard research that people should do up front? But more, you know, culturally, what, what are some things that we need to consider when moving? You know, that could be around you don't hire individual salespeople. You need to hire them two at a time, for example, in the US for any or no reason, you know, you need to have an SDR or you don't need one. So just, you know, give me some tips around what we should think about when moving to the US. When moving to the US, that's a good question because I can definitely speak to what I think US should do when they move to Australia. But let me think about that a give little us both. bit. Give us both. Okay. Let me think about that a little bit. So you said outside the standard things, I, I think your point on, right? Like, you know, what is your biggest market opportunity are you trying to verticalize? Are you, you know, do you see your biggest opportunity in retail, hospitality? You know, as as you know, like, do I move to the to, to Vegas to sell to casinos to start? So I really think you need to put yourself into an area that will allow you to dominate in one vertical and then slowly grow. I would say in the U.S., it's hard to spray and pray if you if you try to go too big at the very beginning. You probably are going to set yourself up for failure. Find your niche. Find what you're going to be good at best. Get some referenceable clients, some marquee lighthouse accounts that could be references for you. Because if you can get a big brand that speaks on your behalf and champions within that account, that's going to help you. So start small, then go big. Don't set yourself up for failure by going too big to start. I think that's one big piece of advice for Australians coming to the United States, right? And and does that mean that not everyone needs to move to San Francisco. Not everyone needs to move to the Bay Area. Can tell me about, you know, let's say we were to move to, you know, the stock standard San Francisco and we want to start selling to Denver or we want to start selling to Texas or, you know, any other state. Is there anything that we need to, are there any considerations there? Like, what do we need to think about if we're selling across states? Is there any cultural barriers? Do they not want to do business with us unless we're registered in their state? You know, tell me a little bit about that. I, I, I absolutely don't think so. And I would say Americans definitely have adopted that work from home policy. I would say it's more important for somebody to live in, in a hub like Denver, like Atlanta, whatever, because you are going to be traveling a lot. You do need to get FaceTime. You, need to, you do need to start creating those relationships. And so you want to live in a place like Denver where you can get West Coast, East Coast pretty much at the same time direct flights everywhere. It doesn't really matter. I would say, yeah, you can live in the tech hub of San Francisco, but there's a lot of tech there. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be better than anyone else. If anything, it's like, okay, I moved to the Northeast because I really want to focus on the retail vertical and all the retail accounts I need to go get are in New York, 
right? Oh, I'm trying to sell to casinos. Well, you better live and breathe and live right there by all your customers next to all the casinos. <laughs> Fuck that. You know? I would not. Nah, I don't care. That is one industry I would not get into. There's no way I would die living in Vegas. <laughs> my, my, uh, my territory in Vegas was short-lived as well. I was young in my <laughs> 20s and I had to quickly get myself out of there too. <laughs> it's one of those things that you can experience, but you can't stay for too long. It'll eat you up. It'll just, you know, It'll drain you financially, spiritually, emotionally on all angles. So completely agree when, with when, that. When I left, when I left our Vegas trip together, I f- what you just said is exactly how I felt. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, there's a reason why conferences are always in Vegas. It's a, it's a great time to have fun for a couple of days, but everybody leaves feeling <laughs> the greatest. But on that note, before I forget the train of thought, I think. Maybe I am speaking for Australians, but I'm even speaking for startups here because everybody wants to be the unicorn. Everybody wants to get the billion dollar valuation. Everybody has an ego that they need to work with and they want to be that shining star. Well, that's not the case. Nine out of 10 times businesses fail, especially in America and startups. And I think a lot of co-founder CEOs, which which is great, they're the innovators, whatever. They think they have to have all the cool, shiny things. They have to have the snacks and the this and that, and they need to be in San Francisco. Well, guess what? That's actually, I think, so far from the point because it's expensive to be there. It's expensive to do those things. You need to put your money into your people. You need to put your money into your product before you do all the shiny object stuff. Where I see startups fail is they want to be that fun, awesome culture, but they spend all the money doing it and then they go bankrupt, right? Mm -hmm. So find yourself in an area that's going to be cost effective for your business to be headquartered and don't, and put your money in your people and your product first is what I would advise. I've seen so many shiny object startups that fail pretty quickly. So if, I, if I'm if i interviewing for a startup, like, oh, we have table games and all this fun stuff and open bars and this and that's like, that actually doesn't interest me because you're spending money in the wrong places. Give your good people better salaries. Give your good people better comp plans, right? Allow them to travel and go to conferences. That's where your money should be spent. That is an awesome piece of advice. And do you believe that as a, a startup founder, let's say you've got you've got a team over here in Australia and you've got, you know, let's say anywhere between five to 20 people working for you and you're looking to make that leap over to the US. Do you believe that as the founder, you should be going there and trying to sell the product first or should you take everything that you've learned here in Australia and straight away just start investing in, in account executives and salespeople out in the US and teaching them what you've done here and letting them run with it and, and you know, translate that into what, what it means in, in the US? That is a good question. And I've seen it work in different directions, right? I think founders, CEOs, the good ones, hire people that are smarter than themselves. You want to hire people that come to you with suggestions and tell you what to do versus the other way around. You're telling them what to do. Now, there's a balance of each of that, right? But to your point is, as an Australian founder, yes, you should absolutely be over here in the United States. I call it shaking hands, kissing babies and really meeting these people. It's all about your brand and who you are and where you're trying to go. What is the brand equity that your organization brings, right? Who are you as a founder? I think that's very important. But once you do that handshake, then yes, you absolutely empower your team, give them the tools, the ammunition they need to be able to carry on those relationships without your involvement as much as necessary, right? So I think of it as a as a bell curve. Well, you should be here at, the, or sorry, a U-curve. You should be here at the very beginning where it's like, okay, a lot of activity from the CEO founder, you go away and then you come in at the very end to help 
make sure that deal closes. But let let your account executives do all the work in between. And you should be able to trust them too. And I do think it is important somewhat that you have account executives that know the vertical really, really well, know the territory really, really well, because in the United States, and it's kind of the same everywhere, I harp on your network is your net worth. You need to have a strong network because people are are what going is what's going to get you into doors, open doors for you, if that makes sense. Do you think that's the same in Australia? Somewhat. It definitely helps. It definitely helps. Awesome. It's good to know people in high places, and it's good to have what I call ends and sponsors within an account. So if I have a COO of a big name brand who really, really likes me, and I could I could go, hey, would you be able to refer me into this big brand? I notice that you're connecting on LinkedIn. Well, hopefully they'll they'll do that for you, and that 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 goes a long way. What do you define as champions? Champions are people. There's a big definition. If you've never read a book called Medic, you should read Medic. You'll you'll learn a lot. These are people that you trust. They trust you, and they're willing to push your brand, your product above whatever whatever else may be going on. Champions are people that even when you're not there at the very thirty thousand foot view high level, they're talking about you still. You don't need to be there for them to be talking about you. They're talking about you in their next meeting that they're going to. They're talking about you, your brand, Maladin, and your product when they're at dinner with other senior executives or whoever. You don't need to be there for them to be talking about you. That is your champion. And they have the influence, right? They're not they're not someone who's just supportive of the brand and love what you do, but no one really listens to them. In, in my opinion, I think the champion have, is someone they, they who have has the influence. influence. They have influence and somewhat of power. Yeah. Yeah. They are not a technical buyer. They are not a technical decision maker because you have this one piece of functionality over the competitor's piece of functionality doesn't matter as much. It's exactly that. They have power, economic, economic power, if you will, is an example. Yeah. And just on that, on that medic stuff, definitely. I mean, we're, we're huge. We, we use MedPick, right? In, in our organization, that's every single deal that we have tracking. It must, I'm, I'm a huge med pick Nazi. I sit there, make sure you have it done. Make sure you have it done. I'm always, always on top of the reps. <laughs> you know, what, what, what are the metrics? Who's the economic, but I'm always very diligent about it. Cause I think, I think it's an amazing tool, right? Because if you don't have that framework in place, how are you meant to know how your deals are tracking along? How are you meant to know what information's missing to move the deal along? I mean, there are so many unknowns and now we're actually going to that stage. We've, we've really set up the company amazingly well. And now we're going to start focusing on training. Now we're going to start looking into Gong and all these other things of how do we record calls? How do we how do we repeat the success that's happening in the company? And I think as a as a very basic first step, if you don't have medic, medpick, whatever, whatever acronym you want to use, how do you know? I mean, you're going in blind. Deals are being won and you have absolutely no idea why, who, where, when, how. It just happened, right? So you have your top performing reps that are closing these deals. And you can't siphon any of that knowledge or any of that, you know, successful past out of them and teach them to your new reps. So I, I'm, you know, a huge believer in MedPick. That's why that's why I actually asked you that question, you know, what's your definition of, of champion? But staying on frameworks, right, that sort of leads me into, you know, how sales teams are structured. And we are sort of following that predictable revenue model, right? Like, you know, your BDRs feed into your AEs to feed into your account managers, CSMs, and so on. Do sales team structures differ in 
Australia and the US. And what's your experience with that? I mean, not just in Kronos, but I'm not sure if you spoke with anyone else while you were here about how their sales teams operate and, and what sort of a structure they have in place. Or is that sort of like, you know, global blanket of this is what you should do? Well, the good news is, is where I'm at now in my career is I'm an executive advisor to the CEO, as an example of a couple of different companies, really advising executive teams on sales strategy process, all things revenue. And what I will tell you is every organization has a different philosophy and thought on that, whether right or wrong. I think there's a, a, an ability to have a mixed bag of things, but also that defers on what size of an organization are you going at? Are you a small business SaaS software company going after small businesses? Are you in market? Are you enterprise? Or are you a mix of all of it? That is different because you can have a process for small business sales cycles, but you need a different process for the large enterprise sales cycles. And I would say MedPick, MedPick, or whatever you want to say, there's a bunch of different letters in, in, in that that's really tailored, I think, I believe, on, on the large enterprise, large mid-market to large enterprise. Small business, that's a completely different model, okay? Because in our world, it's how can we reduce CAC, customer acquisition costs? Well, if you have small deals, you can't put as much investment, salespeople, BDRs, marketing collateral, tra travel, all that, as you can in those large multi-million dollar deals. So I would say it definitely defers a little bit. I don't know if that answered your question, but you can point me into a yeah, well, I was I was about to I was about to, and I've got another question that's going to lead off this. So, where you are at the moment, are you seeing that same sort of you know hire the juniors to do all the research, to do the qualification, to feed into the AEs to go to custom success, or do you think that you know, and and I completely understand that deal sizes vary as well, and and that will impact it too because if you don't have large deals, you can't really get the BDR to AE to ha and handoff and so on. So do you, at your current company, have you got the BDRs feeding into that or are you focusing more on the smaller deals? We have a mixed bag. We have small, mid-market, and enterprise, so we have different strategies for each market, right? Now, what I will say, if you're actually asking me for a model, I actually get into healthy debates with my current chief customer officer on this model. I truly believe, and at least this is what enterprise reps were at Kronos, enterprise reps they're not salespeople. They're sales professionals. They're confidants, advisors to their customers. They are the people that gain the trust of their clients to open their wallets and spend money with them. They should be the, the relationship through and through and through. The customer success manager and handing it off and then the upsell and all that, it just gets confusing, right? Most customers want one throat to choke, as bad as that sounds. They want one person that they can trust that then, then can go delegate the ability to command and control your internal and external resources as an enterprise rep is very, very, very important. Okay. But I've also worked with an organization that thinks salespeople should do everything outbound prospecting, inbound prospecting, their own demos, paperwork, clothes, legal, all of it. Guess what? To me, that's the wrong model. Your salespeople are already busy enough just trying to drive deals. You have so much shit on their plate. No wonder you have a burnout problem and can't keep salespeople around. So what do we need to do? Let, let, let's figure out the model that works. I truly do believe that you should have a BDR, business development rep, LDR, lead development rep, whatever you want to call them, that is doing the cold calling, the outbound prospecting, 
the five minute elevator pitch, warm them up and then get them over to your sales professional, then to go get them into a sales cycle and do all the things that they need to do, right? So different models work for different organizations and different products, to be honest. It it really is dependent upon your product, your sales organization, your company and where you guys are trying to go. There's no silver bullet, right? There's no silver bullet. You, you really got to get in and identify your, you know, your, your customer profile. You got to identify what products work with what segment, what vertical, and then you got to build from there, I believe. But all that being said, you talked about process before. Having a process around that is extremely important because yes, your salespeople should be able to follow a consistent process with the same tools, the same teams, the same structures that can be repeatable time and time and time again, for sure. And now let's talk about the future. How do you see, I ask everyone this question because I'm genuinely curious. This is something that really, really burns me all the time. How do you see the world of sales evolving in regards to, you know, there's chat GPT just came out and I'm seeing, you know, LinkedIn posts, how everyone's using it in their work and so many different artificial intelligence tools. you got Gong, you got Zoom Info, you got... You know, so many different things that can that can help push the world of sales along. And then you got people, you know, like John Barrows from JB Sales is always talking about, you know, the predictable revenue model is going to die soon because, you know, we need to go back to full cycle sales. To your point, what you just talked about as a, you know, high level sales professional, you should be doing everything, everything for that deal, right? It shouldn't be, you know, passing from one person to another. So I just wanted to know overall, if you've got any like ideas, predictions, you know, what to tell me, tell me what the future of the world of sales looks like to Evan. Yeah. And you know what? The good thing is, is this conversation's never going to end. We're always going to be having this conversation as, as organizations, corporations, sales leaderships, whatever. The future is, I think it's always still going to be a human to human contact type of thing. People have been trying to automate the sales process forever. It hasn't changed. Yes, we have more tools available at our disposal to help, but there is still a human element to it. We've tried we've tried to do it at, at our organization. I've I've seen other organizations consulted for try to do it. We try to streamline the sales process to get the CAC down and make it as cheap as possible. But still, at the end of the day, a human wants to speak to another human that understands them. End of story. Mm. And a lot of people, well, with this COVID is, is, is with COVID is, is sales going to change? Do people need to have in-person meetings anymore? Blah, blah, blah. I can tell you right now, I've seen the proof in the pudding. Salespeople have gotten lazy. Companies have gotten lazy, don't want to spend the money, whatever. I have seen conversion go up. When my salespeople get on the road, get in front of their customers, take them out to dinner, et cetera, because you get that the personal, you get down to the personal level, you get to have personal conversations, you get to handshake, look them in the eye. I'll tell you a story. Conversion was still good at, at my company, but once COVID and people started getting comfortable, relaxed a little bit, I had my salespeople get back on the road. I had a sales rep. We went to Oregon and she had five client meetings laid up. We had baggies, the drops, everything. We went, shook hands, <laughs> introduced ourselves. We had an in-person meeting one day and the CEO and founder of this company said, you know what? I am so happy you guys came all this way to visit us, came to meet my team. I look forward to dinner tonight because everybody's using COVID as an excuse. I'm so happy you're here. We went to dinner that night. He came to the table and said, listen, 
We're doing business with you. Send me the contract later this week. But tonight, let's have a little bit of fun and get to know each other. Boom, deal got done. And next we thing did- you're in Vegas. What's that? And next thing you're in Vegas. <laughs> and next thing we're in Vegas. So the personal touch is still real, especially at the mid-market enterprise level. Can we reduce costs a little bit in small business? Maybe. But people still want to speak to people on the phone. Think of yourself when you're trying to go through a customer service issue and you get, you literally can't get a human. It's push one, push four, push this, push that. And you're just pushing zero the whole time to get somebody on the phone. That's how our customers feel, man. It's not Mm going to change. By the way, you know, there is a service now that will tell you what buttons to push to get a human on the phone. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it's insane. I can't remember when (laughs) I find the Send it to me. Yeah, when I find the name. I'm just giving up. All right. So yeah, I I completely agree in that sense, right? I think that that human to human contact is not going to go away if there is a big if there though. If the salesperson is delivering some sort of value, I think that's really important, not just for the sake of having a yarn on the phone or just having a chat, right? It's what additional value can the account executive bring to the conversation that I couldn't really just read online, right? Because there are There are a lot of people that would just rather get that information online and make the purchase. So I think that account executives really need to think about how do we deliver that extra piece of value since everything is available online. So you brought up a really good point, right? Today, present buyers today, they do so much research and analysis on their own before they even get on the phone with you. They know who you are. They know who your awards are, blah, blah, blah. So we go up there, oh, we have all these awesome awards, blah, blah. Yeah, I know that because I, I went online and saw it on your website. It wasn't hard for me to figure out. To your point, that does happen, which is why salespeople just need to change their strategy. You need to start talking about partnership, long-term vision, where are you headed, where are we headed? You know, what, what are your growth plans? All those things and build what I call a 12, 24, 36 month plan, strategic plan with your client's input. They work with you and tell you what their upcoming business initiatives are. You work with them, let them know what Kronos's business initiatives are. And let's see how those align. Oh, by the way, I found out that your COO has this project 18 months from now. Let's build that into our customer journey together. The customer journey map. That's why you have quarterly business reviews, constantly building that strategic account plan, building that relationship, because when the time does come, it's not just about this transaction today. It's about what does our partnership look like three plus years from now? We're working together. That is the magic touch that salespeople need to bring. That is the additional value. I know what you're trying to do in the future, not just today. That's where a lot of salespeople miss. No, there's something I haven't heard before. How do you incentivize that? I think you just opened up a massive can of worms, right? Like being an account executive at at a company and, you know, you're telling me, you know, my, my sales director is telling me you need to focus on the future and partnerships on, you know, building that long-term 12, 24, 36-month value. But I'm worried about hitting my quota this year and getting my commission check. So how do you incentivize that long-term performance? And I feel like we're gonna, <laughs> this is going to go, sorry, yeah. How do you do that? <laughs> Oh man, that does open up a huge can of worms because comp plans drive behavior, right? We all know that. But that's also the difference between hiring, recruiting, and retaining 
A talent versus C talent. I like to use sports analogies. That is the difference between an A player, the star versus your bench player or whatever. Do you really want to be here? Do you want to be on my team? And are you here for the future? Because as we all know, we need to build pipeline, not just for today, but for the future. You need to build a three to four X pipeline for the future, because I'm not just looking to hire you for you to have one rock star year. I'm hire- I want you to be performing year after year, legend maker after legend maker trip, going to Hawaii, doing all the things. And if you're not prepared to be that type of team player on my team, then get out of here. I don't want to hire you. So I think that comes to leadership, hiring the right talent, delivering the right message of what you expect of them before you even bring them into your organization. And that goes through the hiring process. I I must admit, I've been pretty damn good at hiring A athletes on my teams that I know are hungry. They're trying to buy that house, their investment property, whatever. And I align their comp plans. I speak to their personal goals within their life to show them how they can achieve personal goals in their life by the comp plan this organization is providing you. How do you do it? How can you be successful year after year? Well, that takes leadership to show them that vision. That is the difference. That is a leadership thing to do. I know that was a long tangented thing, but that is the difference of hiring C talent versus A talent. hundred percent. And just on that, that thing around athletes being good at business, that is so true. I mean, I know this guy here is, he's got a, he's got a recruitment pump company, Alex O'Patrick, and his company is called Athlete to Business, right? And he focuses on putting professional athletes into their first BDR or SDR role. And it's, you know, been super successful. It's a young company, but from what I've seen, he's been growing really, really well. So I think there are definitely things that athletes have that make them very successful in business, especially in sales. So I completely agree with you there. And one last question before we have to wrap it up on that note around, you know, having that vision, that that culture and, and making sure that you hire the right people. How important do you think it is for a company to go through the exercise of defining what their values are, you know, what they stand for, mission, vision, and all of those sorts of things early on in their life cycle? And also, do you think that needs to be revisited and adjusted when expanding into international markets? Well, that's a good question. I haven't heard that before. I, I do think it's important to have your vision and mission identified because that's, that is what makes you different. And your and your people, all of your people, no matter what part of the organization, high or low, should be, should be living and breathing that mission and vision every single day. I really do believe that. Or else you're kind of, you're, you're blind, just running out there into war, not knowing where you're going and, and that you're setting yourself up for failure. Do I think you should revisit that mission and vision? As you mature as an organization, yes, because you, you're you maturing, the, the market you're in is maturing, so you can change that. Do I believe that you need to change it because of international markets? Not necessarily, but also I, I will admit I don't have much experience with that. The companies that I've worked for pretty much stuck to their mission and vision no matter where they were in the world, to be honest. So that's a, that's, that's a really good question, though, Mulatin. Awesome, so, dude. Awesome. Well, let's end it on that. One thing, where can people find you if they want to if they want to hit you up for for more info? Evan Augustine, my LinkedIn profile, just uh, you know, send a send a request and I would love to connect with these folks. Perfect. And are you keen for the Super Bowl coming up? I am. Kansas City Chiefs, baby. Feel <laughs> <laughs> that the Broncos aren't in, that would have been awesome. Talk about A athletes, Mahomes, his drive. <laughs> His commitment, the tenacity he brings to his team every single day is infectious. Whether he's injured or not, he's playing to win 
every single time, and the rest of his team feels that, and that's why they're in the Super Bowl. I need to look him up on Zoom Info and send him the role we have open for an account executive. Maybe he wants to join. <laughs> Maybe he'll accept 30 mil a year. <laughs> Evan, awesome. Thank you so much, man. I really appreciate you taking the time and it was so good to connect. I'll be in the US soon, so hopefully if I find some time, I might pop over and, and check out what your new place is like. Yeah, I would love that, man. And you'll be meeting little Rosemary at that time because I'll be a dad next week. Yes. Congrats right, again, man. Man. Thanks for thinking of me. Thanks for the opportunity, brother. No dramas at all. Thank you. See ya.